Today's scripture reading comes from Acts 8, verses 26 through 35. Hear the word of the Lord. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So question, how do you get bikers, bankers, stay-at-home moms, and a pastor in training um, to sit at a table together at least for a moment? The answer is you put a mic up on stage and you let each of them perform. <clears throat> and uh, if, I, if I have not met you, if you're, you're new this morning, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And when I was in college, I used to go down to this little dive bar called Peaches and perform at their open mic. Um, interesting fact about uh, where this bar was located, it was in a place called Yellow Springs, Ohio. Now, uh, there was all these, you, you know Dave Chappelle? Like there was all these ideas like, where did he go during his absence? And there was like a stint, he was in Africa. But a majority of the time, believe it or not, he was in Yellow Springs, Ohio. I would be sitting in a coffee shop and then Dave would walk in, because he and I, we know each other. So Dave would walk in, <laughs> with his kids into this coffee shop. I'm like, oh, that's Dave Chappelle. And he'd just like get a cup of coffee and hang out with his kids and his kids would punch him in the leg. You know, it was like, wow, there's Dave. Um, and everybody's like, where's Dave? He's right here, Yellow Springs, weird. Um, but in, and he would like throw weird concerts with Erica Badu on a random Friday night. So he'd just show up and you're like, Erica Badu, Dave Chappelle, whoa. Um, but in the background of all of this is this little tiny dive bar called Peaches. And uh, that was kind of the place where I cut my teeth performing Beyonce acoustic covers. That's, that's another sermon for another day. Uh, but then I also really got to know this gentleman named Tony. And he was, he was a really eccentric fellow. He was a, a barber who would then shut down his barber shop for like months and some, you know, like six to eight weeks so that he could drive his Harley across country. And he was a, a free spirit and a deep thinker. So he made for a lot of great conversation, he and I. One night, he invited me over with his family, like his two kids and his wife, and we were eating dinner together. And we would do this sometimes before we would perform. And he leans back and he asks this really intense question. I was sitting there, you know, just about to take a bite of this delicious burger. And he just leans back and he says, you know, Gabe, I've got this, this big question. You know, I've got this neighbor. She's a couple houses down. She's a really, she's one of the kindest people I've ever met. She would like, you know, give anything she had to make someone else 
happier to feel like they're cared for. But she's a really zealous, if you would call it that, a Buddhist, really dedicated Buddhist, and she would never embrace your Jesus. So would you say, this is fun, would you say that if she doesn't embrace Jesus and faith, that she does not have hope for the best life she could have now and eternal life after death? And then he leans back. And then he says, and what do you think that means for me? Which is really fun when you're sitting there with his kids looking at you and his wife is looking at you because then he says, I don't know if I would consider myself, quote unquote, a believer. Now that's a big question. Um, and it's a really personal question. It impacts every single person in this room, you and me. And whenever that question kind of pops up, we see people's faces, don't we? People we love and care for, parents, children, siblings, friends you've known your whole life, co-workers who you've rubbed shoulders with. And, and, and you find yourself asking this question, yeah, is this really the good news for everyone? And, and where do we find ourselves today? We find ourselves at Easter of all days, right? Easter, what's the central claim for Easter? Why we're all gathered here? It's because God wanted to and we deeply needed him to break into this broken world to send his son Jesus to take on flesh, to become human, to live this perfect life, the life the way that God designed it to be lived, and then to teach us as to what it means to live. But not just that, and to do that perfectly, but as each one of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John purvey, that he ultimately then dies on the cross for the sins of the world, being fully man and fully God, fully man in that he can represent humanity and pay for our sins, and fully God that he can now pay our cosmic debt before the cosmic throne of justice because God is fully just and fully loving. And then after he dies, he's buried for three days in a rich man's tomb and then rises again. And what's so fascinating, the reason we're here today is not just because that happened in history. The reason we're here today is because there were over 500 people who said they saw, touched, experienced, walked with the resurrected Jesus. This is a historical claim that shapes the way we view reality. And those 500 plus folks, including the 12 apostles or the, the 11 then plus Matthias who came a little bit later because Judas did his thing, right? You know, those 12 folks who walked with Jesus and knew him intimately and so many others in the first century chose horrendous deaths, unwilling to relent of the testimony that they saw, walked with, and experienced the resurrected Jesus. The validation from God on high that Jesus truly was his son and his death on the cross was sufficient for the forgiveness of humanity. That's why we're here. That's the good news that we come to celebrate, that we don't celebrate some crazy guy that happened to get mixed up with the wrong crowd and show up on a cross, but he died for a purpose and rose again so that we can have hope after the grave. But then there's that question, the question that Tony raised, a question that I, I'd venture to guess that many in here still wrestle with, and here it is, is this really the good news for everyone? I mean, really, like what about the person who lives two doors down in your building or a couple houses down in your neighborhood is really kind and would do anything to care for you but wants nothing to do with Christ? What about the coworker who's an, you know, a very zealous follower of Islam and always has your back and does really good work, but Islam says that actually Jesus didn't die on the cross, that somebody else took his place last second so that he didn't die, he didn't rise again, and he was not the Son of God. Very different claims in understanding who Jesus did and what he did for us.
is this really the good news for everyone? What about that family member who's had repeated situations of untold destruction and brokenness such that you don't even know if they can have a framework for a loving heavenly father? What about the person who was born in a different culture, who doesn't have the framework of Western culture and has no reference point for Christianity? Is this really the good news for everyone? And that is a huge personal question. And today, we're going to see, I believe, we're going to see that it is the most liberating, most hopeful, and beautiful way to answer this question with a resounding and confident yes. Even though every other reference point in our culture that still shapes us, you are not a blank slate. This is not some John Lockean perspective of humanity. You've been formed. Every single aspect of our culture wants to resound with no. But the most hopeful, most liberating, most beautiful answer to this question, is this really the good news for everyone? We're going to see is yes. So if you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Acts chapter 8 beginning in verse 26, which is found on page number 916, if you happen to be using one of our community Bibles. If you don't have it, you can get up now. We're a pretty relaxed community, so you can go and grab it because we're going to be diving in. But while we jump into our text that was brilliantly read for us this morning by Micaiah, we are introduced to two people who who would have not known each other, you know, from from Adam. I mean, they they totally don't understand who each other is at the the start. We first come to this guy named, or we don't actually know his name, because it's not a matter of knowing his name, it's knowing where he comes from and what he is. He's an Ethiopian, so he's not Jewish, and he's a eunuch. He's an Ethiopian eunuch who actually works for the government of Ethiopia. He's a high-ranking official with a lot of privilege, a lot of wealth, directly corresponding to Queen Candace. There's not a dime that gets spent in Ethiopia that this guy does not know about. And even his body as a eunuch has been now malformed, shaped to make him solely focused on this one goal in serving Queen Candace and the government of Ethiopia. Everything about his life, in many ways, has been set up for success for this one particular vocational calling. But he still aches for more. That's why he's in Jerusalem. There's no other explanation. A guy who did not wake up or was not born culturally or ethnically Jewish, and yet he's in Jerusalem at the temple, the place where Israel's God is. And he's aching for meaning, for hope, for longing, and he's there to worship, and he spends his time there, and he leaves, and he's coming back from Jerusalem, and what I could only imagine is like the first century equivalent of a Rolls Royce. I mean, he's there, and he pulls off his chariot, and he pulls out one of the most famous prophets of Israel, the scroll of Isaiah, and he begins to read because he's looking for answers. There's got to be more. Now, back up just a little bit, and we meet another guy by the name of Philip. He's a Jewish guy who grew up Jewish, and yet He hears about Jesus, and he becomes an early follower of Jesus. And and he hears about Jesus' death and his resurrection, and he believes, and he's so zealous about following Jesus in this new burgeoning movement that he becomes a deacon, right? He's, He's called out. He's selected as a deacon, which was kind of a leadership structure in that early church. And then something crazy happens, like an angel shows up to Philip and says, hey, get to walking. Those boots, they've been made for something, right? So start heading from Jerusalem down to Gaza, Get out of Dodge. And and what's even more amazing is that he listens. He's not like, ugh, what did I just eat, you know? What was the falafel from? Like, no, he's like, okay, there's really 
an angel, and I'm going to now start walking. And he starts walking from Jerusalem down to Gaza, which is a bit of a desert place, and there's like a, a major watering hole there. And he comes upon this guy who's reading the prophet Isaiah out loud, and the spirit nudges, talks to, encourages him to go up and approach this guy, and he does. And the Ethiopian eunuch, this African gentleman is reading the text out loud. This is common practice. We still kind of do this today. Like when you really want to get into a text, you want your ears involved and your mouth involved. Your bo- I mean, he's reading it out loud so he can process the argument, the flow of the structure, a really thoughtful gentleman wrestling through the text. And Philip walks up to him by the leading of the Spirit in the direction of the angel all to this one moment. And he says, hey, do you understand what it is you're reading? And I, I love this African guy's response. He's like, hey, I can't make heads or tails of this. What am I supposed to do unless somebody guides me? Which, isn't that comforting? How many times have you opened your Bible and thought, oh man, what am I supposed to do with this? Uh, That is not a rare occurrence when you're walking through Scripture. You're not alone. This is why we read Scripture even in community to navigate and learn together as we seek to understand God's Word. And so this seeking Ethiopian invites Philip, this deacon and, and gone evangelist in the early church to come and sit with him in his chariot. I mean, these two guys, they had no plan to meet each other. They have a different cultural background, different vocations, and actually completely different geography to some degree, except for how God weaves them together for this moment, for this time. And I want to just pause here for a second, because when I was first reading this story, I started thinking like, why didn't God just have them meet in Jerusalem? <laughs> you think about it? Like Philip was in Jerusalem. The Ethiopian eunuch was in Jerusalem worshiping. Like why didn't God tie them together then? Like, hey, let's just save the road trip. But no, instead, God like lets the Ethiopian eunuch pull off to the side of the road and wrestle with this particular text. At this particular time, he's hungry for answers, wrestling with what is right in front of him. And God guides Philip to this unique moment why all this trouble for this one traveler? And if we're reading this quickly, if we're just skimming the passage, we're going to miss one of the most beautiful pictures about God's heart for the world. You see, listen this morning, no matter how zealous you are in pursuing God, no matter how curious you are about spirituality, what we see here is that God is more interested in you than you are in Him. God is more interested and you knowing about him and him being known by you, no matter how zealous you may be, no matter how many books you read, no matter how many conversations you pursue, no matter what distance you go, God is still always more zealous, more interested in knowing you than you are in knowing him. Is that how you, is that how you picture God when you're wrestling with questions and doubts? When anger and loneliness and frustrations spark up in your life? Is that how you view God as someone pursuing us? And by us, I mean every single one of us? Look, I know this story feels a bit fanciful for our 21st century modern framework. I mean, you've got angels interacting with folks. You've got the Spirit of God speaking to Philip. But even still, when you hear that and you hear about God's heart for the world, doesn't your heart begin to resonate with that? Don't Don't you feel like that's right? A good God who created a good world that still has pleasure as a component of it and longs for us to know him and to be known by him? Doesn't your heart just feel like that's right? And at the very least, don't you want it to be true? Don't you want a good God to be that way? 
with all your questions, your fears, your anger, your doubts, God is pursuing you. And what's so amazing before we move on is that no matter your cultural background, no matter how zealous or doubtful or no matter your orientation or your race, listen this morning, this news makes space for everyone. The good news about Jesus has space for everyone. As we've seen in our story, for an African seeker and for a Jewish now convert to following and embracing Jesus as Messiah, this has space for you, it has space for me, it has space for everyone. And how liberating is that? This isn't some good news just for a particular people in a particular space in this particular time that's limited to them, so don't even try to get it. You go find your own thing because this is our thing. No, you could be married, you could be single, you could be young, you can be old, you could be any kind of pigmentation. You could have any sort of cultural background. You could be born and raised in any culture. And what we find here is that this good news is not ultimately good news because it's about us. I mean, there's a part of that. But ultimately, it's about who God is and his character. The Apostle John, writing in his first letter, John, or first John says that God is what? Love, and he longs to offer, overflow his love on us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But what does it look like? What is he offering us in this love, right? What, what is so intensely interesting that it causes this Ethiopian eunuch to go up to Jerusalem, to pull off to the side of the road, to spend time wrestling with texts and scripture? It all comes down to the secret in understanding all of this is in exactly what the Ethiopian eunuch was reading. You see, he's stuck on a particular vision that the prophet Isaiah had around the 8th century B.C. It's a vision of a man who dies a really gruesome death. And the Ethiopian gentleman, he asks Philip, he's like, hey, is Isaiah the prophet here speaking autobiographically or is he speaking about someone else? And how, how does Philip answer? As you're thinking about the text you just heard read, and we're going to look at it again, how does Philip answer? Because how Philip answers actually is the paradigm for how the early church read the, what is called the Hebrew scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament. And we see it here in verse 35. Look with me. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, this passage in Isaiah, and he told him the good news about Jesus. You see, from the beginning, those who embraced Jesus, they didn't embrace Jesus because they happened to cherry pick a couple passages out of the Hebrew scriptures and say, well, this kind of correlates with this guy named Jesus. No, what they did is they saw the resurrected Jesus and were trying to put their Bibles back together. And when they read what we now have organized from Genesis to Malachi, this broader narrative, what they come to understand is that this one whole story, every prophet, every language in Moses, every moment throughout the scriptures have been pointing to this one person, Jesus of Nazareth in the first century. They've been pointing to him. And you can go to any scripture and ultimately get to Jesus because every single verse is echoing his name. Jesus would come, would live and die and rise again. Jesus himself says as much in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, I haven't come to abolish Moses and the prophets. I've come to what? Fulfill them. They're all, every single one of these passages are aching for Jesus. 
He also, walking on the road to, uh, to Emmaus with a couple of folks after his resurrection, it says he opens the text. That was in Luke 24, a little bit later in the text that we heard read even earlier in our gathering, where he opens up Moses and the prophets and how every one of them were ultimately pointing to him. And maybe none of these ties are more explicit than right here in Isaiah. You see, Isaiah was given grace to see and then share what he saw in the 8th century. He knew that Israel... Just to give you a little bit of history, Israel was founded by God through Abraham with the mission to bless the world. That was the goal through the nation of Israel to be Israel, Israel, to be a conduit of blessing. But when Israel denied, rejected their God, then their mission instead of blessing became an avenue of oppression of the most vulnerable in their society rather than a conduit of God's truth and blessing and justice for the world. And so they had exile in their future and Isaiah saw it coming. It would eventually happen totally for all of the nation of Israel around 522 BC. And Isaiah, knowing what's coming, the exile that's coming, begins to ache for salvation. Is oppression and destruction the final word for God's people? And God promises no. That salvation will come. This is Isaiah 52, okay? Of salvation will come and it's gonna come through someone, and he's going to be exalted and high, and he's going to bring this, and when you get to Isaiah 54, he's going to bring a new covenant, a new promise with God that'll bring peace with the world, and out of this promise of peace, God's going to recreate the world as it ought to have been. And then when you get to Isaiah 56, imagine this Ethiopian reading, Ethiopian eunuch reading this, Isaiah 56, all the outsiders are now welcome in. This isn't now just something for Israel. There's actually a specific passage in there about eunuchs who are doubly removed because he's not Jewish, And he's a eunuch, so he was isolated from like certain inner sanctimoniums there in the worship sanctuary at Jerusalem. But instead, in this new covenant, in the new creation, those who are on the outside are welcomed all the way into a place of honor and celebration. How is all this possible? Trickles all the way back to Isaiah 53. The one that will be high and exalted must first deal with the brokenness of the world by absorbing all of that brokenness into himself and dying for the world. Isaiah says, says, and the iniquity of us all was laid upon him. Every one of our sins and the brokenness that runs right down the center of every human heart and all the brokenness in the world paid for by one suffering servant, King Jesus. And so we read in Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was pondering. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And Philip begins to relay how the servant foretold here in the 8th century B.C. is ultimately pointing to and how every prophet thereafter is ultimately pointing to none other than Jesus of Nazareth, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world and all the brokenness and the heartache all upon him and his death. The salvation we ache for, that we long for, promised in and through Jesus alone. He was broken for us and then stood before the cosmic throne of justice. We, we do not worship a God who is not just, but one who upholds justice where wrong actions require direct punishment. And yet he is more gracious and loving than we can ever fathom. 
And simultaneously, Jesus representing all humanity as fully man now represents us and can pay our debt. And being fully God goes before the cosmic throne of justice and says, I pay their debt on their behalf. All in Christ. And then Jesus now beckons us to look at his brokenness on the cross and to see our brokenness. To look on the cross and see all of our penalty for our destructive decisions we've made against ourselves, against each other, against this earth, and yes, treasonous actions against our creator God. And to see them all paid for. And so Jesus went to the cross for us, but he also rose again for us. In his resurrection, we see the resilient life, the author of life, not being held down by death, but coming out the other side victorious and now promising that whatever is broken within us can find healing and wholeness in Christ alone, as we sang this morning. Because this news, this is so important, this news can heal every wound. And so many other things, when it comes to healing, when it comes to pathways of wholeness, they have all these other requirements. Like you've got to be married and have 2.5 kids to really know the whole life. You've got to be successful to know the whole life. You need to be attractive or you need to be, you know, resourceful or smart or you need to be white or black or Asian or Latina or you need to be a man to enjoy all the benefits or you need to be a woman to enjoy all the benefits. No, all of that goes by the wayside where you can actually be healed of every wound as a human being. We find universal feeling there in the midst of our universal brokenness. And every one of us with our sins that we've committed against each other and the sins that people have committed against us, the sins of your fathers and your mothers, the sins of your children against you, the sins of your siblings, your coworkers, your neighbors, all can find healing and forgiveness when we have nothing to give but everything to gain exclusively in Jesus. This is what Philip lays out to the Ethiopian eunuch. And so is it any surprise when you read through Acts chapter 8 and you read a little further on, he jumps at the opportunity to be baptized. He's like, I want, my, my body has actually been marred and focused towards a particular trajectory with a particular end for the purpose in the government of Ethiopia. But I want my body like to be submerged, to actually now have a reorientation towards something else bigger than anything else this world has to offer. You see, he didn't have to convince the Ethiopian eunuch that this is the best news around. He just wanted to know how he gets to be a part of it. And then he finds out I'm invited, that Jesus is the one who's done this for me, that there's a new promise, that there's new creation life, and I get to be invited. I'm in. Because what is baptism? Baptism is the brilliant picture publicly of what God has already done in our lives. And listen to me, what's so amazing about this news is not just that, they, that it makes space for everyone and that it can heal every wound, but what's so amazing about this news, what's so liberating, what's so hopeful, what's so beautiful is that it's so simple to embrace. Embracing Jesus and what he's done for you and trusting him with your life. Baptism is like the most brilliant picture. Because listen, you don't baptize yourself. Do you? I mean, it's not like you're in your bath and like, here we go. Um, like, no, baptism, baptism is what? Somebody else has to do that to you because you've got to receive it. You stand there with someone, a pastor, or and you're baptized, you're immersed. And what's this beautiful picture 
Baptism doesn't save you, but it is a command of Jesus to then follow in his footsteps as he's called us because this is, and whenever, listen, listen, listen. Whenever Jesus makes a command, this is a side note, it is always for our good. We can have, the way you view commands is ultimately filtered by the character that you think God has. It just, I know this isn't anywhere, but listen, because when Jesus commands baptism, it's because it's really good for us. It's not like he's like, once you've got all your boxes checked, then you can, no, like that's not him. Baptism is such a wonderful gift because it's fully embodied, like the water running off your skin. Throughout history, people can't always point to, oh, when did I really start following Jesus? When did I not? But you can point to your baptism to bring confidence and assurance in your faith. It's a gift. That's why Jesus commands. He commands good things and then empowers us to do them. He's a truly gracious God. But here, baptism, you are then, if you know the kind of the liturgy or the structure of that moment, you're buried in the likeness of Christ's death. You find union with Christ's death that all of your sin, all of your shame is now placed with him on the cross and then raised to new life. By the power of the Spirit, you walk in resurrection life, not in perfection. Baptism isn't a place where I finally say I'm good enough to get baptized. No, it's a place where I say I I'll never be good enough, but Christ was good enough for me and I want to give everything I can, even if it's imperfect, to follow him. What a beautiful picture. And the Ethiopian eunuch wants all of this and it's that simple. And after this moment, after the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized, I love this because all of a sudden Philip is like swept up by the Spirit and he's just out. Like, I'm gone, you know, like, and he just goes to like another town and he's sharing this news with other people who have different cultural backgrounds, who have different stories, who have different narratives of brokenness in their own interpersonal lives. And he's saying, this good news is still good for you. But what about the Ethiopian eunuch? He walks away rejoicing. And then even tradition has it, he's one of the first non-Jewish missionaries. So you have the movement of Jewish converts and then Samaritans was also have a, like a mixture of a Jewish background. But then this is the first non-truly Jewish convert is an African gentleman who goes back to Ethiopia from a people who have a very different cultural background and he says, this is the good news everybody needs to embrace because it's so good. There's nothing better out there and it makes space for everyone and it can heal every wound you have. Even me, an Ethiopian eunuch, I can be a part of this. And it's so simple to embrace. And it changes everything. You see, I once heard an illustration about embracing this good news, like what it does to your life. It's kind of like a guy who won like this prized work of art. And he like brings it home. And he goes to like each room in his house. And he's like, it doesn't really fit in any of these rooms. Um, so I'm going to tear down my house. Seems right, right? I'm going to tear down my house. And I'm going to design my whole house now around this one work of art. That is what embracing the gospel is. It puts a shining light. It now reorients everything in our lives, our work, our relationships, our framework on forgiveness and compassion and justice around this good news because this good news really is the good news for everyone. And I always find that so astounding when I look at this Ethiopian eunuch and Philip. God weaving all this together. And I think one of the great temptations is you read this and you can say, well, that's the first century. But listen, it's still happening today. And just as a reminder of that, I'm going to show us a story from one of our sisters from Brook our Brookside campus who got baptized this last fall when she said, I want to make this story my story. Let's watch. When I tried this many years ago, when I say tried this, it's the walk of faith, right? When I just tried to do it the, the godly way. And I would always start from the beginning in Genesis, like, okay, 
let me read this. And I never exceeded Genesis. <laughs> it was just not easy. It was not comfortable for me. We give all the wrong people all of our time, all of our love when the Lord was there from the very beginning. And it just resonated with, I'm like, mm, you preaching to me, like, <laughs> I need to get come back. I need to learn more about this. My probably most memorable moment, moment at the church has not happened yet. I will be baptized and I am super pumped about that. India has become uh, a friend and I've been so excited to journey with her in her walk with Christ. So India, tell us this afternoon, this evening, why do you want to be baptized? Well, to be honest, the Lord has been calling me for many years, but I put him on hold. I took other calls before his for many years, and it wasn't until a year ago where I found myself begging him not to wake me up. I was at the lowest point, and he woke me up. And he told me that I serve a purpose. And it's the best conversation I've been having with him since I answered the call. It's been a long walk, but it's not just for me. It, it's, it's really to, to prove and just let the Lord know I am so serious. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, I, I've watched that, that video a lot this week. Um, but every time I see it, every time I hear it, it's just an inspiration as to what God can do in and through Jesus for the world. What God can do in and through you, what he can do in and through me, all because of Jesus. And, and it's only this news, listen folks, it's only, this is why this is so liberating, so beautiful, so hopeful. This news makes space for everyone. This news can heal everyone. This news is so simple to embrace. And so I'm going to ask a question that, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey this morning, but I don't want you to balk at it. It's a very simple question, but it comes with robust implications. And here it is. Have you made this, embraced this good news as the good news for yourself? Have you embraced this good news as the good news for yourself? Now, I know some of you are here because, like, your Aunt Edna invited you, and you're going to go to brunch afterwards. Like, I get it. Like, I know some of you are here because it's Easter, and that's what you do. Um, I know some are here because you hear churches give stuff away on Easter, which we will. Um, <laughs> that's coming. You'll find out. Uh, it's actually really awesome. So you picked a good Sunday. Good on you. But, <clears throat> but listen, regardless of what was your motivation, you're not here, even ultimately because of your motivation. You're not here by accident. God was weaving all of these pieces together that you might be here, that you would hear this good news as the good news for yourself. And if you haven't embraced it, why wouldn't you? So if you're here this morning, I don't, I don't know where you are in your walk, but if, you, if you've not embraced Jesus or you're continuing to explore spiritual things, I want, you to tell you, I want to tell you just how simple it is. This isn't original with me, but it's as simple as ABC. <laughs> it's as simple as the ABCs of the, of the Christian life. First, A, first A, A, admit. Admit that you're broken. That's pretty easy to do, I think. That we're sinners in need of forgiveness and need someone to put us back together. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and our brokenness, that he's the son of God and that he rose again. And then C, commit to now follow with everything you can, not perfection, because that won't happen until he returns, but with everything you can to now let him guide your life. A, admit, 
B, believe. C, commit. It's that simple. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, it's that simple. And here's the other beautiful thing. Some of you say, well, look at the Philippian, uh, Ethiopian <laughs> eunuch. Look at him. He got baptized right away. What about me? Well, next week, on the 8th, we have a baptism service. And listen, I would love to help if you have further questions about this and what it looks like to start this relationship or to now turn, repent, to change your direction and now walk with God in your relationship and celebrate that in baptism. I'd love to help. Please come and talk to me. That's just next week. We'd love, love, love to celebrate that with you in baptism. And remember, baptism isn't I finally good enough to get baptized. No, it's an admittance that God was good enough for you. And now you're committing to follow him, even in your imperfection and failures. But now I know also, not just for folks who are here for various reasons, but I know some of you, I know many of you, by name. And I know many of you would say, hey, this news, this good news is the good news for me. I've been baptized. I get it. But, but when I look at Philip and I see his attentiveness to the Spirit, when I see his zeal to share this good news, that's not me. And so I want to ask a question, not to, you know, spread any sort of doubt on any faith you might have or assurance of faith you might have, but the question remains the same for each of us this morning. Have you embraced this good news as the good news for yourself? Because listen, who are the greatest evangelists, the ones who share this news the most? It's actually not the folks who had a 12-step class on how to share your faith. The people who share their faith the most are the people who got the taste of this good news for the first time. Brand new believers. And they like run back to their friends and their family like, I don't understand how all this works out, but man, there's this guy named Jesus. He died for me. He rose again. And you got to get to know him. It's that simple. Some of the greatest evangelists are people who are just sold out with zeal for this good news. And if you're not, Ask the question, if this really is the good news you're banking your life on, are you still trying to prove yourself in some other form of success, protege, or whatever? Through a protege, whatever. What about you? Have you embraced this good news as the good news for yourself? Because listen, this really is the only good news for everyone. And I know I started with this question like, how do you get people around the table? You let them perform. Ego is a strong motivator, at least for a moment, so you can let yourself shine. I get that. But what's an even greater motivator when I look around this room and see who's going to be gathered around this table in a moment? I see teachers. I see engineers. I see social workers. I see marketing agents. I see counselors. I see pastors. I see stay-at-home parents. I see students. I see so many different folks from different cultural backgrounds, all anchored in the person and work of Jesus, now calling each other brother and sister. And this has been going on for 2,000 years in a fragmented society, whether they grew up in a Western framework and society, or you think about the the huge revival that's happening in China and Asia and the eastern section of the globe and the southern section of the globe. People who have a very different cultural background who are embracing Jesus say this is the only good news. The, only, the reason this is is because this news really is that good. How beautiful it is. Liberating. Hopeful. And it's the news that every single person needs to hear. Why wouldn't you want this news to be the good news for you. And honestly, church, why wouldn't we want everyone to hear it? Hmm? 
And in light of all that, he is, we, we, we say all of this with great hope and confidence that he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for this good news. That it's so simple, that it makes space for everyone and it can heal every wound. Whatever we're coming in with this morning. May we really trust and believe that. May we really trust and find comfort in how good this good news is. God, if there's fear, if there's arrogance, if there's brokenness or doubt, may your spirit speak to our spirit and draw us closer to Christ. May we find salve for our wounds. May we hear you cry, come and welcome. And may we trust that it really is that simple. God, we need you. Help us. Help us to embrace this more fully, to let it sink down into our convictions and shape our lives holistically. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.